So this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We are going to be focusing uh, once again on the Great Commission. We have one sermon left uh, in this series on the Great Commission. We'll be looking exclusively at uh, the end of verse 20 next week and uh, Christ's promise to be with his church to the very end of the age and what that uh, means, the significance of that, uh, at, at, uh, uh, and, and how that affects the Great Commission in our work as a church and our support of missions. Uh, but uh, today we are going to be uh, back in uh, looking at uh, how uh, we are, uh, Christ tells us to, we are to fulfill this command he has given us to make disciples. And so I'm going to read uh, verses 18 through 20, though our focus will be on verses 19 and 20. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Since the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to his people. So in this uh, series, we have already considered, with respect to the Great Commission, the authority uh, from which the commission comes to us, which is the authority of Jesus Christ, all authority in heaven and earth that has been granted to him, particularly as he executes the work as our Redeemer. We've also consi- considered the command last week itself that, that he gives to us to make disciples of all nations. And today, as I said earlier, we are focusing upon the question of how. How do we make disciples? What is it that defines this disciple-making command that we have been given from the risen Christ? Furthermore, how does this inform our support and, uh, and the work of the work of missions? Now, some have mistaken disciple-making uh, and forbear evangelism. They have reduced it down to simply uh, just, just making converts to Christianity. Others have come up with more creative definitions of, of what a disciple is. But as we've already seen these last two weeks, we are not free to redefine or to define for ourselves what a disciple is. Uh, reading the Bible, as we know, is not a uh, exercise in reader response activities. Uh, the, the message uh, that his, Christ's disciples are to uh, proclaim is not for us to determine. It is that which has been given to us, handed to us. And the same is true for how disciples are made. And so today we are going to consider, uh, last week we looked at the main verb of the sentence, which is make disciples. It's the imperative command from Christ, make disciples. But today we are looking at the three participles that surround that verb, which is go, baptize, and teach. Those are the three participles that work. Basically, if you're not familiar with English grammar, uh, I didn't learn English grammar really until I went to seminary. Okay, so I went to graduate school, <laughs> and uh, that may bring up some questions about me, but, uh, but, uh, um, but I learned that basically participles are the servants of the verb. 
okay? They are essentially working for the verb. They're the verb's minions. They're the verb's flying monkeys that it sends out to do its bidding, all right? So, uh, and so, these, uh, so these three participles are defining what it means to make disciples. And so we're going to look at each of those and, and, what, and define the path of disciple-making in the church and in missions. That is, we are to go into the world, we are to baptize into the name of the Trinity, and third, we are to teach disciples to observe or to obey the commands of Christ. And we'll look at each of those this morning. So first, we, are, we make disciples by going into the world. And we note that we go into the world, and this may seem rather obvious, but we are going to the world where we live, right? Uh, wherever you go, there you are, as the saying uh, goes. So, uh, but we go into the world where we live. Now, now this is important because uh, Christ sends out his church. He sends out his disciples. But if you read the Bible, not all sending outs are a blessed thing. Okay, so Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, right? Not exactly the best situation. Uh, Cain was also sent out into the wilderness after he murdered his brother. Uh, the nations uh, at, at the Tower of Babel were scattered, were effectively sent out throughout all the world as a form of judgment for their united rebellion against God. Israel was sent out into the wilderness for a generation, for 40 years. As, as a judgment from God. And later, Israel was sent out of the promised land into exile for 70 years because of their violations of the covenant and their refusal to repent. But we also, even though we note those sending outs uh, uh, under God's judgment, uh, that we note that they are part of the plan of God as well. Because God, he takes those negative sendings and he works them for his redemptive purposes. But he also, we see in the scriptures, God does call out and send out in a blessed way, in a non-judgment fashion. Because uh, it, so he calls Abra Abram, later Abraham, out and sends him out of his father's house and father's land into the promised land with many blessings. Uh, the Lord called Israel out of Egypt. He sent them out of Egypt and into the promised land. At times, the Lord would even send his prophets out, like Jonah or Elijah. And here in Matthew, we have Jesus in the establishment of the new covenant by his death and resurrection, sending his people out, telling them to go. And we, so we know that this is not a neutral command that, uh, that Christ gives. We are not, the disciples of Christ are not sent out into the world under judgment. We are sent out in blessing to accomplish the work that Christ has for us to do, specifically to make disciples. Now, in every case, whether negative or positive, the people that God sent went, even Jonah, who tried to avoid it. But he just took the long way around, took the scenic route, as it were, via the whale. But where do we go is the question. Where do we go? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 
records Jesus declaring that his disciples will start in Jerusalem. Then they will proceed to all Judea, head north to Samaria, and then expand out to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what they did. The church began in Jerusalem, swelling to thousands of members, to the point where it was, uh, you had widows getting neglected, where you had the, the establishment of the diaconate in order to meet those needs because of, the, because of uh, the great needs of the church, the great size of the church. But then persecution broke out with a man named Saul at the tip of the spear. But the persecution only served to spread the gospel further because Christians took to the highly accessible Roman roads and carried the gospel to towns and villages where they ended up living. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 records that they, therefore they were scattered abroad. And what were they doing? They went everywhere preaching the word. And so I want to make note of this. Because not everyone during the persecution left Jerusalem. Plenty of Christians stayed in Jerusalem. Further, not everyone who left became, you know, what we would call short-term missionaries, going out on week-long trips or two-week-long trips or two-year-long trips only to return. They actually just moved to those cities and lived there as Christians. There were those who were like Saul, who was after his conversion became the Apostle Paul, and who did go out on specific missionary journeys, who went out nearby, who went to local areas, but also went to foreign countries, got on ships and sailed to far off places too, as far as the recorded maps would be, as far as they were concerned, the ends of the earth uh, by their standards. Um, but, uh, but everyone from, from, from those in Jerusalem, to those who were getting on ships and sailing away, were going. All of the disciples of Christ were going, and so are we. We are going as Christ's disciples right here in Bailey and in Meridian. We're going to our neighborhoods, our shops, our communities, our places of work. We're going with our lives, with the gospel at the heart of it all. And our missionaries, of course, are going. They're going with, with, with significant sacrifice. But they're going, not just with you know, some gospel tracts in pocket to just to disseminate some information. They're going with themselves, with their lives. They're going with who they are as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ. They are the ambassadors of Jesus going forth into the world and living there, shining the light unto the nations. And so we go, as Christ's disciples, wherever we live. We go with ourselves. We go with our lives. And we go as his witnesses. Acts chapter 1-8, I mentioned it earlier, but Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Last week we made reference to the end of Luke's gospel. Because remember, Luke is volume one and Acts is Luke's volume 2. And so in, at the end of volume 1 in Luke 24, Jesus tells his disciples that they will proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to, uh, into the world because they are witnesses to these things. In the letter of 1 John, the apostle identifies himself 
simply as one who has, has, is one of those who is simply testifying uh, to what he has seen and heard and touched. The point is that the, that the disciples of Christ went into the world to proclaim not a clever message that, the, that would get buy-in from the public uh, or a feel-good uh, message that would create large buildings and organizations to prop themselves up. They went out as witnesses, not to their own ideas, but simply as witnesses to that which they had seen and heard and touched uh, regarding Jesus Christ. And there have been too many pastors and churches who have lost sight of that very basic point that Christ sends his people out as witnesses. But the disciples, we would note, are actual physical witnesses to the miracles, the sufferings, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. What are we witnesses of then? Well, we are witnesses to the power of the gospel and the grace of God that makes sinners into sons and daughters of the living God. We are witnesses to the power of the Holy Spirit who abides in us, renewing us, sanctifying us unto the kingdom of God in glory. We are witnesses to the truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He has saved us. And he can save you too. We're witnesses similar to Polycarp, the early uh, church witness, uh, and who uh, went right before he died was recorded as saying, you know, these 80 some odd years, he has been faithful to me when he was asked to recant or they were going to kill him. So these 80, you know, 85 years he has been faithful to me. Will I be unfaithful to him now? There is witness born. The faithfulness of Christ from one who had never seen him in the flesh, but had seen him beheld the Savior with the eyes of faith. We are witnesses today of the power of God's saving grace in the gospel. And that gospel that saves us, that has saved us, that is saving us, that will save us, is available to all who will repent and believe. Secondly, we make disciples by baptizing into the name of the Trinity. So there's a vertical and horizontal dimension to this part of what Jesus says. Uh, but as far as the vertical goes, uh, that when we are baptizing, uh, we are bringing disciples, new disciples, into relationship with God. That, uh, that is... Uh, to be baptized is to receive the sign of the new covenant upon our bodies, marking us and our children out from the rest of the world. But what is baptism the sign of? Well, what does Jesus say? He says we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, a, a very rich vein. We could spend a lot of time just on this very part here because uh, the fact that the word name is singular, but three names are given, is, uh, is, a, is a implied, a strong implication of the assumed understanding of the Trinity. The unity of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one essence, one being. And so, uh, but... 
It also, it also certifies the, uh, the understanding of Jesus' own understanding of the deity of the Son, that he is indeed fully God and fully man, and we could go on with our systematic theology. But, but the preposition here, to be baptized into, is, is very much positional. It means that those who have had the sign upon them uh, who believe in Jesus Christ are in a, in a special, blessed, and eternally glorious relationship with God, that is defined by mercy for sinners, by being, uh, by being buried with Christ and being raised to new life in him by faith, by being united to him by faith. The sign points to the promises of God in the covenant, and those promises are bringing forth God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing forever in glory. Now, the people in view here immediately would have been those who were converted from, uh, from either Judaism uh, or from paganism and unbelief, who would then receive the sign upon themselves and their children and would raise their children up in faith and obedience to the gospel. And so this means that when we talk about making disciples, it is, uh, it is more than simply evangelism, but it is at least that. Uh, to convert to Christianity is to believe the gospel promises, to give yourself up to the lordship of Christ, to bend the knee to him, and to submit all of yourself to him forever. What is interesting uh, is that uh, you know, to convert to Judaism, any faithful Jew will tell you, takes a long time. It takes years. You have to learn. There's lots of hoops to jump through. There's all kinds of stuff you got to do. It takes a long time to convert to Judaism. To become a Christian can happen in an instant. It, comes, it takes a moment. But again, conversion is only the starting point. Baptism must be applied, not, not as some kind of like saving ordinance and that like you can't be saved if you don't have it but because it is the sign of the covenant, the sign of our relationship with God, it is the recognition that we are entering a relationship not just with the people around us called Christians, but most fundamentally, baptism is a sign of our relationship with God. Uh, now sec uh, secondly, um, and so that's that vertical aspect, now the horizontal aspect is when we baptize, we are not only uh, you know, giving a sign of people, uh, of people entering into a relationship with God, but we are also bringing disciples into relationship with the local church. The Trinity is who we baptize disciples into. The church is where we baptize new disciples into. The Christians are not baptized in Jesus' mind or in the mind of the authors of the New Testament, Christians are not baptized into the evangelical ether of the church. Okay. Baptism, ha baptism happens somewhere. It is performed somewhere. There was a video I just saw. There's always, there's always Christian church excesses that are really cringe. Um, 
And, uh, and this, of course, was from uh, uh, North Georgia, where I'm, where, where I'm most recently from, um, where they had, like, do-it-yourself baptism, and they just had a, a pool, and people were just, just jumping in and just dunking themselves, and you're just kind of like, and somebody was just like, I know a pool party when I see one. This is not a baptism. Like, this is just music playing and people jumping in water <laughs> in a building. Like, that, that is what this is. Christians are baptized into the local body of Christ and, are, and by its very nature have a relationship with the Christians in their midst. The church today often neglects this reality. But rampant individualism combined with the online you know, church service resources that are available uh, are, are hurting, not helping individuals when it comes to being part of a local community, a local church, because we need each other, and we're fooling each other, and we're fooling ourselves, rather, if we don't see the presence of the local church in the background of Jesus' words here as part of his intention. Jesus expects new disciples to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the midst of the local church. We share a relationship with each other as baptized disciples of Christ. We bear that mark upon our body. We actually had a very interesting discussion in the officer training last week. We were talking about this. It came up in our in Westminster Confession. And it, it, it notes in there in Westminster, Westminster Confession that baptism is meant to be a mark that separates us, a mark upon our bodies that's, that we carry around that separates us from the rest of the world. And, it, it's like, and it's just like, have you thought about your baptism in that way? A mark upon your flesh that separates you out from the rest of the world. That is what we are. And we share that as baptized believers here uh, in, uh, in, in, as members of this local body, as members of churches even. We share it even with other Christian uh, churches. But we share this relation by grace as we live in community with each other. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of ministry in the church and in the work of missions. Near and far, we are seeking to gather the saints by proclaiming the gospel, and we support missions and missionaries who are involved in the work of proclaiming the gospel and bringing unbelievers into a saving relationship with God. Third, we make disciples by teaching obedience to Christ's commands. In addition to baptizing, Jesus said that, uh, that we are to teach disciples everything that he commanded. And, and so teaching requires instruction. This is something, this is a truth that every student uh, is disappointed to find out. That teaching requires instruction, requires them to, uh, to, to, to be quiet and to receive new information. All right, there are, I already have so much information. Yes, but you need more. All right? And we continue to learn and grow as, as, we, as we continue in life. But teaching does require instruction. And, and this, uh, this is unusual, though, especially in kind of the more modern evangelical church because we live in the age of the consumer, where the customer is always right, where churches are viewed as service providers uh, rather than holy assemblies, of the saints. 
because instruction is not popular because instruction makes demands of us. And, uh, and, that, can, and that can be very uh, offensive to people who didn't come to have demands made of them. They came to have a nice service. They came to have uh, some enjoyment. They came to have for whatever thing they came in for, but they didn't come to be instructed. They didn't come to be told what to do and what to think or what to believe. But as disciples, we are by the very nature, definition of the word disciple is one who's going to learn, to, who will be taught. And to teach everything that Christ commanded, as he says, that means, by definition, that there is a definable body of knowledge that is to be communicated to Christ's disciples. It means there are things that belong to that knowledge, and there are things that don't belong to that knowledge. There are things that don't belong there. And where do we find it? Where do we find this knowledge? Well, in the scriptures, of course. Now, Jesus isn't saying, you know, uh, in days to come, when they start writing this stuff down, and, and later on, when Christian publishers decide to put my words in the Gospels in uh, a red font for some reason, and all of a sudden the church suddenly declares that uh, the red letters are somehow holier than the rest of the scriptures uh, uh, for some reason, um, that, that, that you can just cut, ignore everything else. No, why? Well, because Jesus said the whole Bible is about him. All the Old Testament is about him, and so it's worthy of our study. If we want to know more about Christ, we certainly uh, ought to read the gospel accounts to meditate directly upon those commands that we do find in those red letters uh, that we f in, our, in our Bibles. But if you want to know more about Christ, you also ought to read the Psalms. We ought to read the stories of the Old Testament. I mean, it was when we were studying in, in uh, Sunday school for the youth, when we were studying the book of Jonah, and we're talking about Jonah being in the, in the belly of the fish, uh, writing a song about how salvation belongs to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, Jesus in his teaching says, uh, says, basically, I'm like Jonah. Jonah is about me. Uh, you will not see any sign, though you demand one, except the sign of Jonah. For just as J Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. And how he relates what was going on with Jonah with him and what he's come to do. We ought also to read the New Testament letters. Those letters spell out in great detail the impact of Christ's life, his commands, and the implications of his imminent return. It is the, the, the fact that we are to teach, dis, uh, teach assumes that Christ's disciples, including those disciples who are instructing, are, must be willing to learn and to grow, that we are willing to give up our time to, to learn uh, of Christ and his word, that we would be faithful and, and, and seek to be faithful and seek to be fruitful as, as disciples. And so teaching requires instruction to be given, but learning also requires obedience. Learning is more than just filling our minds. Christ doesn't simply say to instruct his disciples in, in, in what uh, he uh, in what he, he uh, commanded, he says to teach his disciples to observe. That is, to observe is to carefully obey. This means that obedience, two things, is one is obedience is learned. 
if you're being taught to obey, that means obedience is a learned skill. And it also means that obedience is not simply, it's not only having the right information. That's part of it, but it's more than that. I mean, how often is it that, that if we're perfectly honest, we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it? No one needs to tell us what the right thing to do is, and especially if it's your spouse. You're like, don't tell me. I know. What, I know I shouldn't eat that, all right? Or I know I know what I need to do, all right? Or, 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 or I mean, heaven forbid, you know, a, a sibling tell a sibling the right thing to do, all right? Just, just snarls abound. How often do the cares of the world restrain our obedience to Christ? Because it would be too costly. Because honestly, we just don't want to. We know the right thing, and we may know the command of Christ, but the question is, are we willing to obey him? When he says we cannot serve God in money, do we believe him? Do we obey him? When he says that we are to pick up our cross daily, do we kind of go, do you mean like bi-weekly? Well, bi-monthly? Well, I, I'm, I'm good for annually. Let's do definitely annually, okay, on a ca- calendar. I'll really do it. Do we obey him to die to ourselves and to live for God? Thankfully, there is much grace in the Christian life. And our God gladly gives it to his disciples because, again, obedience is learned. If it's learned, that means that we go from having less obedience to greater obedience. Lord willing. That means we go from from starting with lacking obedience and then increasing in obedience. And so we don't need to hurl ourselves into the, you know, off into the pit of despair because we are shocked at the worldliness of our hearts and our lives. But neither should we just go, ah, eh, well, you know, no Christians are perfect, so, you know, I'm an imperfect Christian. Aren't we all imperfect Christians? Okay, well, let, let's just move on. The answer is in the grace of the Holy Spirit who enables us to repent and believe the gospel, and today to repent and believe the gospel, and to endeavor to walk in greater faithfulness to Christ's commands. That's what disciples do. Now, if you're a disciple of Christ today, you say, I am a disciple of Christ, and you believe that you lack nothing before the sight of the Lord, uh, well, then it would be good for you to ask, uh, uh, you know, to, to go read the story of the rich young ruler, went and spoke to Jesus and said, I obey all the commands. And Jesus is kind of like, really? Really? There's one you're missing. Do I obey the commands perfectly? Then after having joined the rest of us imperfect disciples, let me say, uh, in the words of the, one, the greatest Christmas movie ever, welcome to the party, pal. Um, just a diehard reference. Uh, so, but, having, uh, but having joined the rest of us imperfect disciples, what we need to ask is, how can I obey Christ more tomorrow than I have done today? How can I show God my love through my obedience in his word more today than I did yesterday? And how can I encourage, not harp and beat on, but how can I encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same with me? This is the focus of our church and our work here 
and in our support of missions. We do Sunday school to instruct, not because it's traditional, it is that, not because we've done it for many, many decades, longer than I've been alive at this church. Bailey has. <laughs> but we do it because we want to instruct our members and their children in the ways of Christ that we may be built up in love and holiness. We do small groups because we want to fellowship together in the word of God that we will be strengthened in the faith together. We don't want to know more about the Bible simply in order to have big heads, but so that we would have holy lives to lay before the Lord. And so in our support of missions, this is our prayer and our purpose as well. Our desire is to see sinners made into saints, to be connected into local churches, where they will be conformed to the image of Christ. R.C. Sproul uh, wrote, uh, wrote on this uh, particular issue, and he, and, he, and, he, and he wrote about making disciples and that command that we're given uh, especially in response to just the idea of just making converts. And he writes, quote, Christ calls us to make disciples. Disciples are people who have committed in their hearts to follow the thinking and conduct of the master forever. Also, just a comforting, if you go read that article, and I can share it with you later, but he talks about how bad he is as an evangelist and how terrible he is, and so you can comfort yourself if, you're, if, if that's you, because uh, that's this guy right here. So, uh, but he says, such discipleship is a lifelong experience. This is what it is to make disciples. It's not a program. It's life. It's to go into the world with our lives, testifying about Christ as his witnesses, baptizing new converts and their children into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and into the local covenant community, the church. And we teach, as Christ's disciples, we teach, we instruct Christ's disciples to observe all that our Savior, our Master, our Lord has commanded. This is the picture of the ministry of the local church, this is the picture of the, of the labors of our missionaries. And since we are commanded, church, to make disciples, let us go, let us baptize, let us teach until the fullness of the people of God are brought in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have laid out for us in your word what it means to make disciples. And we recognize, Lord, that we are not capable or able or strong enough, knowledgeable enough, holy enough to make actually make disciples, to make anyone become anything. We recognize that that ultimately is the work and gift of the Holy Spirit enacting the will and plan of God. But you have commanded your church, our living Savior, who is resurrected and ascended and coming again has commanded his church to make disciples. He has given us the means of which, which is us, our very lives. And so, Father, we pray that we would walk in obedience to that command. That we would go into the world right here and throughout the world through our support of our, our missions and our, our missionaries and their work and their labors here and abroad. 
We pray, Father, that we would baptize, that we would share the gospel, that we would, that you, by your Spirit's power, would lead people to faith, and that they would be baptized into your name and into the community of the local church. And we pray, Lord, that, that disciples would be instructed to walk in holiness and obedience to the commands of Christ, that we ourselves would walk in obedience, and that we would seek to walk with greater faithfulness and obedience as your people, always repenting, always believing the promises of God, always relying upon the grace and help of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.